Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. Also, I have to give a shout out to the live stream crowd. Uh, we know they're there, but we, they don't normally give us a lot of feedback. When I cut the head off the stuffed animal last week, live stream went crazy. Like, we weren't trending on Twitter, but they just thought that was the best thing ever. So we know you're there. We appreciate you. Grace and peace to you. So anyway, uh, we are in week four of a series we've called The Story of Us. Um, and in, during this eight-week run, we're taking a look at the eight most important ideas in the New Testament of the Bible, according to me. So as we've said all along, I probably missed a couple, but for me, these are the eight most significant things to know about what the New Testament tells us about God and Jesus and faith and life. And uh, as many of you know as well, we're inviting you to read the whole New Testament for yourself during the eight-week stretch. Hundreds of us are doing it. It's been so much fun. I run into you guys all over town, and you've got your books with you, um, and you're compliant, and you're awesome, and I'm aware that a whole bunch of us are not compliant. Where are you at? Non-compliant. Yeah. Some of you just went, oh no, we started that thing? Yeah, okay. Remember the rules. Number four, every week is a new week. We're starting week four this week, so it starts tomorrow feel free to jump ahead and join the rest of us. We have a few copies left if you'd like to grab one out at the Information Center. Uh, get your own copy of the New Testament. Anyway, it's been a lot of fun. So let me catch you up um, on where we've been if you're joining us for the first time. Uh, we started the series with an observation that I think is foundational. Before you read the New Testament, you need to know this, and it goes like this. Without the resurrection, there would be no New Testament. Without the resurrection, there would be no New Testament. Uh, Jesus came among us 2,000 years ago, called people to follow him. They spent three years with him. They came to believe he was the Son of God. They came to believe he was the Messiah. They came to believe he was the Savior of the world. And then he died on the cross. And on that first Good Friday, no one believed anything about Jesus because the Son of God can't die on a cross and Messiahs aren't supposed to be crucified. And so everyone sort of unfollowed Jesus when he died on the cross. And they sort of gathered together to try to figure out what was next. And a few days later, on that first Easter Sunday, something undeniable yet unexplainable happened to those first disciples. Jesus appeared among them very much alive. Uh, and they told people about it. And then decades later, they wrote about it. Uh, but the whole thing started with the spark of the resurrection. That was week number one. Then in week number two, we talked about something Bible nerds call the incarnation, when the creator of heaven and earth came among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And this has all sorts of implications. Our big idea for the week went like this. Uh, Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation for God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation for God. Lots of people have claimed to have the best explanation. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation, and the difference is significant. Jesus basically says, if you want to know what God is like, watch me. If you want to know how God would treat someone if they're at their lowest, watch how I treat people who are at their lowest. That was week number two. Uh, then, of course, last week was Vampire Sunday here at Keystone. That joke still didn't work. Okay, you know, we talked about the blood of Jesus and how only the blood of Jesus shed on the cross can wash us of our sins and can pay the debt that we have with God based on the things that we've done to break fellowship with him. And our big idea uh, went like this. Uh, Jesus didn't claim to know the way to restore peace between people and God. Jesus claimed to be the way to restore peace between people and God. Those are the first three critical ideas. Uh, now, to get us going this morning on idea number four, I need to tell you about a conversation I had on an airplane. So um, all pastors have airplane stories, okay? They generally go, I was going to somewhere, I met somebody, they didn't know Jesus, and at the end of the conversation, they did know Jesus. They were like repenting on their knees in the, in the aisle or something like that. And that pastor looks heroic. 
this is not that story, okay? Just, just to be clear, uh, a couple years ago uh, in January, I was on a trip with some seminary students and to Israel, and when you go to Israel, you have to do a couple of really long flights, the longest of which is Chicago to Istanbul, Turkey, uh, and it was an overnight flight. I was coming off the holidays. I was exhausted and really looking forward to just sort of taking an Ambien and sleeping all the way to Istanbul. Um, now, people who are like me, meaning high, taller than six foot three, do not like long flights. Okay, none of us like long flights, but I really don't like long flights. Um, but there is always a sliver of hope when I enter the airport because once in a while, the Lord smiles upon me and I score the exit row. You know talking about the exit row? I scored the exit row. See, this is a picture of my feet. I was so excited. I was going to have a great trip to Istanbul. I was going to take my Ambien, fall asleep. It's going to be great. Totally restored and refreshed getting to Israel. Uh, and to make matters even more perfect, there was no one seated next to me. I took a picture of that. I mean, seriously. I was like, it was, this is just perfect. And then, and then I thought, this is a little too perfect, right? And then they closed the door so no one else could board the plane. And I thought, I can't believe this is happening. And then it happened. I saw a stewardess walking with another tall person towards me. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, I started thinking unholy thoughts, right? It was like, there they come. Turns out this other tall person had played uh, college basketball, and uh, she, she too was a tall person, and she said, hey, I'd love to sit next to you. And I, of course, said, oh, of course you can sit next to me, because that, you know, that's what Jesus would do. So, <laughs> so she sat down next to me, and, uh, and I'm still planning to just sort of sleep, and she's a talker. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So she says, hey, where are you headed? You know, like final destination. And I said, I'm going to Israel. And she said, Israel? And then she kind of sits up and looks at me, and she goes, you're not a Christian, are you? And I thought, well, one, apparently I don't look like a Christian. I don't know how to take that. And, and uh, the other thing I thought right away was, I got to be careful how I answer this question because people who say, you're not a Christian, are you, generally don't like Christians. And people who say, you're not a Christian, are you, really, generally, really don't like pastors. So I'm thinking, I'm on some, you know, I said, I don't know what to do here. So I thought, you know, honesty is the best policy. So I said, no, I'm, actually, I'm a pastor, going with a bunch of seminary students to Israel. I have a, a pastor church in Michigan. And, and she looked back at me, and she goes, well, I used to go to church, but I don't go anymore. And I said, really? And, and uh, you know, kind of do tell. And she said, well, I grew up in Chicagoland, and I was in a family that went to church. We were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Then we would repeat. And I said, okay. And she said, so church was always a part of my life. But then somewhere in middle school, I started to notice that, well, at my church, there were rules. And if you didn't follow the rules, then they sort of pushed you out. And, and it really bothered me. And the older I got, the more it bothered me. And she said, I remember my best friend's parents got divorced, and it's like they were uninvited. She goes, I don't know, I wasn't in the meetings, but like they stopped coming. And, and then from there, one of my friends in high school got pregnant, and, and she sort of stopped coming too. And then there was another friend who sort of came out, and they were sort of uninvited as well. And I just, she goes, I, don't, I don't completely understand the whole Jesus God thing, but I felt like this can't possibly be what he had in mind. She said, at my church, and she said this, and I wrote it down because it was really good. She said, if you weren't perfect, you weren't welcome. And they get to decide what perfect means, right? Uh, they would fully acknowledge none of us are perfect, but there were like rules. And if you didn't follow those rules, it was like you, you, were, you were out. And so she said, I just, I just bailed. And then she looked at me and she goes, so how in the world did you ever decide to become a pastor? And this is like, for me, this is the, now I'm into this conversation, right? Because this is like throwing steak to a Rottweiler. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> this is going to be good. So I, I said, um, what, what you've experienced is, 
is unfortunately not very unique. A lot of people have very, very bad church experiences and they spin out. And I said, here's the thing. What you experienced is not what Jesus had in mind for the communities that carried his name and his reputation. It really wasn't. And, and then I, I said, if you're, if you're up for it, and we do have like a nine-hour flight, but if you're up for it, I would love to share with you the picture of Jesus that the New Testament represents because I think you're going to find it beautiful. And so we had dinner sitting next to each other, and we talked, and a little bit of what I shared with her is what I want to share with you today because it's, it's, it is really a beautiful picture that emerges of what Jesus had in mind for his communities when you read the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, honestly, you start to realize that the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth signaled something brand new in human history. It's like there were all the religions that came before, and they had rules and regulations and to-dos and to-don'ts and ways to make things right when you did something wrong. But, But when Jesus came, he brought a very different sort of message and a very different sort of mission. In fact, all of the other religions had these systems where you could make yourself right with God based on your efforts. Jesus came and said, I, I need, I'm going to establish a new covenant, a new testament, a new arrangement. They're all sort of synonyms between people and God, and it's not going to be based on your behavior. It's going to be based on my blood shed on the cross. That's how this, this thing is going to work. So I want security and not insecurity to drive my followers because I want them to know where they stand with God. Jesus also instituted a new command, a new ethic, a new defining ethic for his followers. And he said, if you can just do this one thing, everything else will take care of itself. It was beautiful. It was clear. It was elegant. It was uncomplicated. But as we soon found out, when you threw people into the mix, it was a bit too uncomplicated. After the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Christian communities began to pop up all over the Mediterranean rim. People took the message of what Jesus had done uh, all over the Roman world, and Jews and non-Jews joined these little Jesus communities. Uh, and almost right away, attention surfaced, and in hindsight, it's, it's pretty predictable. Um, it, it's nothing you and I have ever considered, but it, but it went like this. Uh, do you have to become Jewish before you become a Christian? Do you have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian? Because, of course, Jesus was Jewish, and his first followers were Jewish. And and so do you have to sort of adopt the whole Old Testament law in order to become a Christian? And again, we've never considered this, you and me, because of one really good reason. We like bacon, right? So this isn't even a question we've ever asked, right? I love that sign, bacon, that is all. Oh, hallelujah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it just didn't feel right to the Jewish Christians to completely abandon their tradition. And so they they had this tension, and what they did in order to resolve it was they said, well, let's import some elements from the Old Testament Jewish faith into the message of Christianity. And let's try to forge a new community that was sort of a refined version of Judaism. Let's assimilate some of the Old Testament Jewish rules into the Jesus model. But here's the thing. As it turns out, that is a very dangerous thing to do. Well, to the church's rescue came a man named Paul. 
And when Paul first walks onto the pages of history, uh, he's actually not a Christian. He's not a Jesus follower. Paul is originally a Pharisee. He's a professional Jewish religious leader who believes that the Jesus movement is a cancer within Judaism that needs to be eradicated. So he hunts Christians down and arrests them and tries to destroy the movement. And he does this with all sorts of passion until the day he comes face to face with a resurrected Jesus. And this, for Paul, changes everything. Because he's trying to stop a movement that is founded on a resurrection. And he comes face to face with the resurrected individual on whom the movement was founded. And so Paul basically says, okay, if Jesus is raised, then that does change everything. And Paul was a Pharisee, so he knew the Old Testament laws better than anyone. In fact, as a Pharisee, if you had said to Paul, what's your job? He would have said, my job is to be good. That's what we Pharisees do. We know the law, we memorize the law, we study the law, and we try to figure out how to obey the law. That's the gig of a Pharisee. As it turns out, Paul becomes the perfect person to carry the message that we're going to explore today because Paul, more than anyone else, would have understood the Jewish law. And more than anyone else, Paul knew that Jesus didn't intend to renovate Judaism. He wanted to launch something brand new, and blending the two wouldn't work. So on his first journey to tell people about Jesus, Paul goes to a region called Galatia. It was sort of the wild, wild west of the Roman Empire. It's in modern-day Turkey on the eastern edge. And Paul plants this little house church. And in order to fill it with people, he goes to the Jewish synagogue, and he talks about how Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, who God has sent. And then he also goes to the market, and he invites non-Jewish people. And so in these house churches, you have a mixture of people from a Jewish background and a non-Jewish background. And they mix in this new community, and Paul leaves them with the message that he believes Jesus had for them. And then Paul leaves and moves on to plant another church. But another group of missionaries follow behind Paul. These are Jewish believers in Jesus, and they basically say to this young house church, hey, Paul didn't give you the whole story. He kind of gave you the highlight reel, but what you need to understand is that if you're really going to become a follower of Jesus, there are some aspects of the Old Testament law you're going to have to adopt. Uh, For some of the guys, you're going to have to have a little surgery because that's what followers of Jesus have to do. And of course, you can imagine there were some really awkward moments in conversations between these church leaders and certain Gentile men, non-Jewish men who hadn't had the surgery when they were babies. and, And maybe it went like this, you know, Jesus died on the cross for you. You can have a little surgery for him. Which is a compelling argument you have to answer, but, but it's like, is this, is this really necessary? But Paul finds out about this, and he believes that it is an attack on the heart of what Jesus came to do. He knew that you can't blend the Old Testament with what Jesus had in mind, otherwise the message of Jesus would be corrupted, diluted, and polluted. And so Paul writes a letter to these Christians in Galatia, to explain why this is such a dangerous thing to do. And I want you to experience the intensity because this meant everything to Paul. So here we go. It starts in Galatians 5, verse 1. And again, if you're reading the Bible, you're going to read this soon for yourself. But Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so Paul would say to us, listen, um, if the sort of religion that you are following, you wouldn't describe that as coming into greater and greater freedom, you're probably doing it wrong. So that may be a conversation for later, but is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, he says, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
So Paul refers to the Old Testament law as a yoke of slavery. A yoke in the first century was a set of teachings. And he says, this is not what Jesus came to do. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. And I want to say, Paul, buddy, try the decaf, right? I mean, this is, I mean, really? Is it that big a deal? And just to be clear, Paul wasn't against the procedure of circumcision. Paul had been circumcised. Many of us here this morning have been circumcised. In fact, if you have, just slip up your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) Awkward. Yeah, right. So Paul wasn't against the procedure of circumcision, but circumcision in this conversation represents the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the 613 laws that the Jewish people attempted to follow. And Jesus, he knows, came to do something new. So if you're circumcised as an adult in order to earn something, then Christ really has no value to you at all. You've abandoned the new to embrace the old. So Paul continues. He says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. So you start to see why Paul is getting so animated. It's like, okay, listen, if you're going to put your faith and your ability to follow rules instead of what Jesus came to do, then you're obligated to obey all the law. If you put your faith in the law, you've got to obey the law. That means there are 613 of them. You've got to dress right, walk right, talk right, eat right, keep the Sabbath. I mean, don't kid yourself. You're either all in or you're not in at all. And God has launched something brand new for all nations. Circumcision has no value anymore when it comes to a special relationship with God. He continues. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law. So you start to see this wasn't just about doing the procedure. This was like, if you do the procedure, that's going to help you be justified. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. So if the Jesus message is a message of grace, you've made it grace and And he said, if you do that, you lose the heart of what Jesus came to do. Uh, To help us unpack that a bit, um, I want to talk to you about the title of today's talk, which I was super excited about, gift cards and discount cards, right? I was trying to build tension, right? Gift cards and discount cards. What does this have to do with anything? Well, just imagine with me that after the service today, uh, you, you were really moved and you said, you know, that was probably the best sermon in human history. It's not but let's just pretend. Okay. So you said, this is such a great talk. I just want to show my appreciation for this, this talk that has now changed my life. And, and you go into your wallet and you, and you realize that you have a Starbucks gold card, not the one anybody can buy, but the one you won, right? This is a very valuable gold card. And you have a hundred dollars on this gold card. And you say, man, I want to, I'm going to give this to Brady to thank him. And you come up and you say, hey, I want to give this to you. And I'd be like, oh, like that. That's probably what I would do. But yeah. So then you see this gold card and you say, man, this has a hundred dollars on it. I want to give this to you. And I look back and I say, oh, I could never accept that. I could never accept that. You say, no, I insist. This is a big deal to me. It's a gift. I say, I, I, I just can't do it. But you've got kids and you need to leave. And, and so you're just kind of like, you've got to just take this. I mean, I really feel like you should take this. And I say, no, I'm not going to take it. But then my wife's, you know, talking to me because I got kids and I need to go too. And, and I say to you, listen, all right, can, can I give you 50 bucks for it? And you look at me, you're like, 50 bucks? It, it's a gift card. Like, I'm giving it to you as a gift. Why would you give me 50 bucks for it? I'm like, no, no, you, you, you know, I, I can't take 100 bucks. I get 50 bucks. You say, no, I can't get 50 bucks. So we go back and forth. Eventually, I say, well, what about 25 bucks? And you're exhausted with the whole thing. I think, I got to find a new church. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> and, 
And so I give you 25 bucks, I get the gift card, and you walk away thinking, what in the world is he doing? You know what I just did? I just took the gift card and made it a discount card. I just got myself 75% off at Starbucks, which is not a terrible idea, right? But, but at the same time, it's like, it's not a gift if I pay for it. And it's like Paul is saying what Jesus came to do was to offer you a gift of scandalous grace. I mean, amazing. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's grace. It flows out of a God who loves you and wants to be right with you. But as soon as you start trying to earn it, you lose the grace. And that's, that's what Paul is saying. That's what these first Christians are in danger of, of doing. They're taking the gift out of the card. The moment they're trying to earn they're standing with God through surgery or through law-keeping. It's like they've done away with grace. Paul continues, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It's like Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm a Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That, that, that was a part of my experience, and that had value for a time, but now God has done something new. None of that matters anymore. That's not why God loves me. Then he says this, the only thing that counts, so if you're a note taker, this is cool. You, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And you're like, Paul, you were a Pharisee. You obsessed about the Old Testament law. 613 commands. Like, that was your life. And now you're saying, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's, that's crazy. I mean, what about Moses? What about the Ten Commandments? At least there's got to be ten. Paul says there's one. One thing. Faith expressing itself through love. And here's why that's so significant. Uh, circumcision and all that it represents, the Jewish law, makes people think about how am I doing with God? Am I following the rules? Am I outside of the boundaries? How are we doing, God? How are we doing? And God says, okay, if you want to make things right, then here's a way to make things right. And you can, I made it right, and then I screwed up again. Okay, how, how are we doing now, God? And it forces our life to be vertical. It's constantly insecure about how we're doing with God. And, and, and this is a really, really big deal because it's like Paul is saying in Jesus, that day is over. If you're a Christian and you believe Jesus is your Messiah, quit worrying about what God thinks about you. You and God are doing fine because it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what has been done for you. So stop looking up and start looking around. What matters is how you treat others. And this, I mean, this for Paul, I mean, Paul was the perfect individual to carry this message because for him, life was obeying the commandments of God. And he takes this corner, he says, no, life with God is about how you treat other people. Next verse, he says, you were running a good race. Who cut in to keep you from obeying the truth? Like, you guys, you got this, and now you lost it. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough, which is really weird, right? Like, what is he talking about? A yeast is a single-cell fungus, which is kind of gross, but you, you put it in a loaf, right, on dough, and it works its way all the way through. And he says, it's just like legalism. You put a little bit of legalism in, in the Jesus thing, and it, it sort of all becomes legalism. And some of you are like, dude, that was my church growing up. I totally get what you're saying. Just a little bit of legalism mixed with grace. But see, we think grace is, is too good to be true. And so we try to blend them, and that's natural. But when you blend them, you lose it. If you can't hold 50-50, legalism takes over the whole thing. 
That's why blending is so dangerous. And Paul knew this, and he saw where that path went. In fact, it's why Airplane Girl and so many others have walked away from church. So check out what Paul says next. This is like the R-rated part of our presentation. And if you have a, a if you're like have a kid and you want to be snarky and you want to say, let's memorize Bible verses together, you can pick this one and make them laugh. Um, he says, as for those agitators, as in those who want to do mandate circumcision, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Hello. <laughs> can you say that in church? It's in the Bible, you know, like that. And you say, and it's like Paul's like, listen, you don't realize what's at stake. If you head down this path of legalism, you will completely lose what Jesus came to do. And Paul knew it because he was front and center for the Jewish religious model in the first century. And he saw the way that the laws of God were obsessed over and they were used to unlove people that God created. And Paul says, you've got to guard against that. Paul knew what could happen when that sort of religion goes off the rails. It's like he says, if you're going to cling to the old things, you're going to miss the main thing. If you cling to the old things, you're going to miss the main thing. And as Paul continues, he puts the law into the context of what Jesus came to do. Say, Paul, so the whole law is gone? No, he says this in in verse 14. For the entire law, so the entire Old Testament, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul would have memorized that command along with the other 612. And Paul knew that love your neighbor as you love yourself is actually in the Old Testament. It's Leviticus 17, 18. And the Jews had it all along. But he said, it's like he says, if you love your neighbor like you love yourself, all of the other commands will fall into place. You will simply enter a rhythm of life where you're doing what love requires over and over and over and over again. A few years back, um, I was in Atlanta at a church at a conference with a bunch of pastors, and a guy named Andy Stanley was on stage, and it's uh, the son of Charles Stanley, if you're familiar with uh, the TV ministry. But Andy said something that was just so great and so memorable. He says this, that a life of a Christian is a life where you're over and over again asking yourself the question, what does love require of me? What does it mean to follow Jesus? You enter every situation at work, at home, with a wayward teenager, what does love require of me in this situation? And if this question drives our lives, it's, it's, like, it's like Paul says, all of the other stuff is going to take care of itself. And the, the love requires that question. It's clarifying, right? But it's certainly not easy because sometimes love requires you allowing your wayward teenage son back into your home. And sometimes it requires you kicking your wayward teenage son out of your home, right? And sometimes both are what love requires, but this is to be the heartbeat of the Jesus movement. Jesus would say, listen, love God, love your neighbor, the rest is details. In fact, the way you love God is by loving your neighbor. So the Old Testament religious model was constantly obsessed with God, how are we doing? Can I bargain with you? I'll do this if you'll, if you'll let me, you know, off the hook for this thing. And again, this is such a normal part of religious life, and the message of Jesus is that day is over. When he hung on the cross and uttered those famous words, it is finished. You say, what was finished? A lot of stuff was finished. One thing that was finished is this insecurity because like the blood of Jesus made a way where there was no way. Friends, if you get this right, you will pray differently. If you get this right, you will see sin differently. 
if you get this right, this really does change everything because you no longer rate how you're doing in your relationship with God on church attendance and giving. And instead, you rate your, how you're doing with God on how well you're loving people. And if this feels extreme, it just, that just means that, that you're paying attention. And if it feels too wrong and too unstructured, you should know that that's how those first Jewish believers felt as well. But just imagine for a moment, if, if, if this is how Christians started to live all across our country and all over the world, if, if basically Christians decided only one thing matters, I, I just want to treat people like I think Jesus would want me to treat people. And then that, that, that would change. That would change everything. Here's what I know for sure. I've been a pastor for 20 years. Here's what I know for sure. People who resist church, and I talk to them fairly regularly, they don't resist love. In fact, when they talk about what they resist, it's like they resist the way Christians have historically treated non-compliant people. And they have this sense that maybe that isn't what God had in mind. If you take your eyes off the one thing, you really do miss everything. It, it, the message of Jesus is a message of grace and grace alone. And that is the message that took over the ancient world. Friends, that is the gospel. Would you stand? And I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, this morning we just confess that it is so easy to take something so simple and make it complicated. And we thank you for preserving the ancient letter that a pastor who understood wrote to a bunch of Christians who didn't understand. And I pray that somehow his words uh, would speak to us today, that we would understand once again how desperately you love us, how you want us to live lives that show that we are loved by the way we love other people. And in those moments where we feel tempted to start bargaining with you for something we already have, I pray that that gift card analogy would come flooding back to our minds. Grace and grace alone is the basis for what Jesus came to do. And so we thank you, we bless you, we celebrate you in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.